Time for short play. Alex, uber wealthy televangelist Kenneth Copeland recently said in an interview that one source of his income is a large supply of natural gas on his property. Man, Nick, every time Copeland opens his mouth, he produces a large supply of natural gas. Hey, oh, there it is. This, Whoa. This is Swordplay. We are Keeping your hosts. It real. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake <clears throat> Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Let that be a reminder to our audience. Go back, read Ruth chapter 1, 2, and 3, and might as well read 4. Come back, join us for the podcast. We have questions specific to each chapter. So, Nick, what do we got? Let's start off in verse 2, where Naomi's talking about Boaz. She says, see, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Alex, talk a minute about what does it mean to winnow the barley yeah, uh, Naomi says that our kinsman is going to be out winnowing. Uh, note there that Naomi considers Boaz our kinsman with mm, Ruth. So that I. assumes that Moabite, uh, the Moabite Ruth is worthy of Israelite status. But a note on winnowing. So winnowing took place outside of town in an open area. So you'd be, have a big heaping pile of grain that needed to be separated from the husk. So you separate that grain from the husk or the chaff. And that was accomplished by beating out the harvest grain with what's called a flail. Just imagine a really big, long nunchuck that you would <laughs> slap on the ground, and it would separate the grain from the husk. A um, quicker way would be to have an animal pull you around, and you would basically stand on what looks like a toboggan or a sled. And that sled had little pieces of rock on the bottom of it, and the animal would pull you around in circles and... That would separate the grain from the chaff, and then you'd have somebody working with you sometimes to turn over the grain once it was crushed or beaten out so that things got separated more evenly. But after that, here comes the best part, Nick. The winnowing process uh, takes place where you grab a winnowing fan. Just imagine like a big, thin, circular wicker basket-looking thing, like a like a woven basket. You would get a big pile of the of this separated grain with the chaff and you would scoop it up with that winnowing basket it looks like a big placemat and you would toss it up in the air and you would catch it inside of your winnowing mat and you would just keep doing that every time you throw it in the air the wind would blow and all the tiny pieces of chaff and husk they would get blown away and what's left is your final product the uh, the edible stuff the good stuff the grain and so I imagine that was the most enjoyable part of the harvest because you get to see your final product. You get to rejoice at what you have received. But the most important, the most relevant part to the story would be the location. Ruth is being sent out by Naomi in secret to the open country outside of town at night while looking and smelling her best. So as was alluded in the last podcast, uh, these were dangerous times. It's the days of the judges, and this would especially be dangerous for a widowed foreigner such as Ruth. An evil man with evil intentions could come upon her, and she would be without help. There'd be no one near to to hear her scream or to help her uh, come to her aid. No, Ruth is certainly taking a big risk here, Nick, and uh, that's at the command of Naomi. How about Mm. that? What are your thoughts, Nick? uh, Good pointing out that this was... um would have been open country. You know, the best place 
for this activity would have been on a hilltop. Um, and usually on like a hard rock. The rock would have kept the grain free from dirt. The hilltop, you had the advantage of the winds that would come and blow the chaff away. And so this is definitely an exposed place. And again, going at night, there's something about that. And I think we're going to talk about that next, right? Yeah, that's right. Why, Nick, does Ruth have to sneak around? Why can't she just meet with Boaz and talk straightforwardly? This is hinted at in verses 3 and 7. What do you think? Yeah, you know, most commentaries you'll read, they highlight the courage of Ruth in executing Naomi's plan. And that's true. She does exercise boldness uh, when she goes out to Boaz. Commentaries also emphasize Naomi's care for Ruth. She desires that her daughter-in-law no longer be a widow. And again, this is also true. Uh, her desire for Ruth is beautiful. It's motherly. On the other hand, and what many commentaries don't talk about, is Naomi's cunning. How about Naomi's cunning here, right? She, right. The means by which she pursues her end is questionable at best, seems to me in my reading. It reminds me a lot of Genesis. You see, the ethic in Genesis is always the means justify... Uh, or the ends justify the means. Hmm. And and that seems like where Naomi is living. She tells Ruth to prepare herself as a bride, bathe, anoint herself with oil, put on a cloak. These are comparable to what Yahweh does for Israel in Ezekiel 16, verses 9 through 12, where he is preparing her as his bride. Right. And then after that, the plot thickens, and we'll talk about what uh, Naomi tells Ruth to do after that. But... Um, one commentary that did point out kind of the, uh, the the questionable activities of Naomi is Matthew Poole's commentary on the Bible, these old school commentaries, and he notes the manifold irregularity of Naomi's scheme. Love the way he puts that. But he goes further. He says that Naomi's clandestine proceedings were the result of Naomi's distrust of divine providence. Now think about that. She's already said back in chapter 1, that Yahweh has dealt bitterly with her. And so, lest Yahweh deal bitterly with her again, I think she concocts this plan. Um, as to why she would do this, I wonder about how much Naomi knew. Did she know there was a closer kinsman redeemer than Boaz? Again, Matthew Poole's pretty adamant that Naomi could not have been ignorant of the nearer redeemer. Did she believe that these actions could be understood as shameful? That she sends Ruth out by night seems to indicate that she has some sense of the shamefulness of this plot. Secrecy is just all over this narrative. Even Ruth literally comes with a stealth. She comes in secret, as if she were sneaking up on Boaz. Yeah. <laughs> but because we know the story, more or less, we're so familiar with it, and how it ends more just happily ever after, we tend to overlook these controversial details. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, controversial indeed. Uh, <laughs> the sneaking here seems to be of the same intention as how she'll later depart back to the city after her encounter with Boaz. I think she's wanting to avoid slander, both against her and Boaz. Now, based on how special Boaz is described as treating Ruth in chapter 2, 
one can see the gossip train getting ready to uh, roll down its tracks, right? It's already rolling. All aboard! That's right. (laughs) So the key here seems to be that Ruth desires a private moment with Boaz. Could she have found or arranged a private meeting with Boaz in another way that needed no sneaking? Sure, I think she could have. So the better question is, why didn't she? Probably because of the nature in which Ruth was going to give Boaz her request. And now the plot really thickens. Mm. That brings us to our tough text text. of the day. And this is found in verses 4 and 7. Nick, why don't you start us off? What is the significance of uncovering Boaz's feet? Yeah, this phrase has been much debated on its exact meaning. And one writer has noted that nuances in language and style yield a wealth of meanings. And one difficulty is that feet here could be translated as feet, um, or it could be translated as the whole lower part of the body, hips to feet. Now, the latter definition, coupled with the word uncover, or remove, that can leave the reader with a titillating narrative here. Would Naomi tell Ruth to engage in what is at best such sensual behavior? Given that Boaz is a worthy man, we saw that in chapter 2, and as we will soon find out, Ruth herself is a worthy woman, and given that Ruth is presented in such sharp contrast and distinction from her ethnic group, the Moabites, who themselves are the offspring of Lot through the immoral actions of his daughters, and you see Genesis 19, verses 30 and following from more hmm. on that, it just seems to me unlikely that Ruth would engage in any kind of sexual escapades with her kinsman redeemer. And so since this is the case, many commentators do tend to take a more conservative approach to the meaning of uncover his feet. Some take it to mean that Ruth would uncover Boaz's feet so that in the cool of the night he would be roused from his slumber. Others note that slaves and even women were welcome in that culture to take the excess fabric of the master's garment for their own covering as they lay at the foot of the bed. In such an arrangement, then, in the night, Boaz's feet would hit an object in the space which is usually empty. There's another view that sees Ruth's actions kind of as a quasi-marriage proposal. What I found interesting is there is one view no one suggests, and that is that Naomi is essentially giving Boaz a subtle, uh, gentle ultimatum. Uh, the penalty for not carrying through the Leverite law was the man's family becomes the family of the uncovered feet. And so it may be that this is Naomi through Ruth by way of a vivid midnight object lesson telling Boaz, hey, you're missing your sandals here, pal, so <laughs> you need to cover your feet, yo. <laughs> um, and so he can rectify the situation with Ruth Uh, Whatever the precise meaning, Ruth understood the command, and she did what she was instructed to do. Uh, What say you, Alex? Well, it's no secret that this story has um, made the imagination go wild over the millennia. 
Josephus, in his account of the story, he swears up and down. He goes through extra uh, lengths to note that nothing ill happened between Boaz and Ruth. She's like, well, whatever, Josephus, you weren't there. It's like, <laughs> it's like 1,500 years later. Yeah. But what it does imply is that during Josephus' day, even you know 1,500 years later, that other people throughout the ages have thought that something happened here. Now, what exactly happened? Obviously, we aren't told, but I do opt for the sexual euphemism interpretation that uncovering Boaz's feet meant that she exposed his private parts while he was sleeping. Now, I don't take this position because it's scandalous or it's sensational, but because it's the only interpretation that gives explanatory power to why Ruth acts so secretively. She sets up a private encounter to make her request of Boaz when she could have made her request under normal circumstances. I mean, she works for him. She eats with him. Naomi knows him. There could have been a more straightforward way to talk to Boaz. Now, I do not believe Ruth intended to have sex with Boaz, even though there is sexual euphemism here for the exposing of private parts. I do believe that she offered herself in a sexual manner, but she anticipated that Boaz would act righteously. Think about this. Here's the wheel turning in my brain, right? The hamster is running. (laughs) Think about it. Boaz could, in this part of the story, he could have sex with her and no one would know. He could just use her. He could promise maybe to later marry her, but then he could just drop her and never bother with her again. And what could she do about it? Tell people that would only sully her own good name. Besides, no one would believe a Moabite woman over an Israelite man. Does Ruth take a big risk here if she is indeed offering herself to Boaz? Perhaps, but she, and Naomi for that matter, it's her plan, she seems to have confidence in how Boaz will react. And they were right. They were right. Boaz behaves in a righteous manner. So why would Ruth ask him to redeem her by performing such a, let's call it a vulnerable gesture, it's precisely because she would be making herself so vulnerable that the request being made is so powerful. She essentially says that she trusts him to have her, to take care of her, to honor her, and she expresses these feelings by offering the most valuable thing that she can offer, her own body and her good name. Were Bo asked to take advantage of her, then that would obviously be a devastating turn of events. And so if this is what's going on, it really is building tension. And the reader would be wondering, what's Boaz going to do? How's he going to act? How would I act? And then we see Boaz maintains righteousness. Ruth maintains righteousness. That's my thought, Nick. Any final thoughts on your end of the uh, tough text of the, of the day? <laughs> I think we've upholstered the subject very well. There is the right way of looking at it, the way I broke it down, and there's the wrong way of looking at it. The way you, I kid, I kid. Well, you, but that's that's essentially what you will find is both sides of that coin where there's um, the non-sexual explanations and then the one that has kind of the sexual overtones to it. So, Right. Um, Next up, yes. verse 7. Yes, verse 7. What do we have here? Uh, it talks about when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. Um, Alex, talk for a second about, was Boaz intoxicated here? Yeah, so looking at the 
original language, both the Hebrew of the Masoretic text and the Greek of the Septuagint. There's nothing inherent within the language used that demands intoxication or alcohol. Uh, the Hebrew word here for drunk is shathah, and it just means to drink. It's like a normal word for drinking, and it's used to talk about drinking water and, and drinking other things. As opposed to the Hebrew word shakar, which has usually more of a connotation for intoxication. So whether alcohol was involved or not depends on the context. The phrase, you'll find this all over in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the phrase eating and drinking is a very common phrase for describing a normal meal. Um, the drinking part is actually completely opposite in the Septuagint. So that part's not even, that word's not even in there. Uh, it does say, though, his heart was merry, it was of good cheer, and of course, uh, that's how we like to talk about um, somebody having a good time with the old alcohol these days. And I would say this good cheer, this merry heart, it was likely because of his successful harvesting. I mean, he was having a really good day. He probably has an enormous harvest, and uh, his day already good, well, it's about to get better. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Nick? Well, I'm going to take uh, the other side of the coin here and say that Boaz was drunk as a skunk. Oh, All right. <laughs> um, well, okay, maybe not, you know, choking on your vomit type drunk. All right, I see. nothing like that. But um, so there's a there's a gradient there for you, huh? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> He was yeah. He, he was a little just a little tipsy. Um, look, the, the 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 harvest was a time of joyous festivity. He should Isaiah. not be operating a donkey under those conditions. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, get get yourself a designated donkey, donkey driver. driver. Uh, <laughs> Isaiah nine three talks about the joy connected with the festival. In fact, the opposite when God brings judgment is true also and is highlighted in passages like Isaiah 16, 9 through 10, Jeremiah 48, verse 3. Joy at harvest is taken away due to judgment. So could be here, Boaz, you know, he had some of the boys over, his his servants who were helping him with the harvest, and he cracked open a cold one with the boys after they were done uh, with his meal and then fell asleep after the boys went home. Um, Plus, you know, it's the time of the judges. They're doing whatever they want, you know. So um, there is there is also one yeah. other thing that came to mind, which is Deuteronomy 14 about the tithe. And when you brought the tithe, um, you could exchange it uh, for money if it was so much product that you couldn't carry it to Jerusalem. And then once you got to Jerusalem, you could buy anything you wanted. And some of the stuff that's listed there as purchasable and enjoyable before the presence of the Lord was strong drink, which well, is fascinating. Yeah, but everything listed in what you could buy was intended by the context for sacrifice. So you can't bring animal sacrifice from a long distance. It's a lot of work, so it's easier just to bring the tithe, get the money, buy the sacrifice there, and then bring that sacrifice bought on site to the temple and of course there was a drink offering and the drink offering as you know nick is strong drink and yet it's not drunk it's completely poured out and there's obviously theological significance to that so other things to consider in deuteronomy 14 didn't know you were going to bring that up sneaky snake <laughs> well whatever your appetite craves you're going to get to consume it before so the, in, of the lord so in interpreting ruth through the movie animal house <laughs> that's what we're doing here <laughs> yeah um What's next? Oh, yeah, verse 8. Um, so Boaz, middle of the night, he's startled, turns over. There's a woman laying at his feet. 
Uh, talk for a second there, Alex, because there, there may be some significance here in Boaz's position. And uh, yeah, talk a little about that there in verse 8. Yeah, so in verse 8 in the Masoretic text, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and it says that the man was startled and bent forward, mm. bent forward. So that body language, why is that there? That's, that's interesting. You know, in the Septuagint, it just says that he was alarmed and stirred. And that word for bent forward in the Hebrew is the word lafoth, lafoth. And lafoth can uh, it literally mean to twist or to bend. Um, it's defined in the halot, which is the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, uh, as to touch and hold or to touch oneself. Now, that's very interesting language because if his feet being uncovered does actually mean uh, it, euphemistically his private parts were exposed, then the wording here makes sense. You can see him waking up, realizing he's exposed, and then bending forward and twisting and touching himself to cover his nakedness. So he gets startled, he twists and turns, he covers his nakedness, touching himself to hide what was exposed. That makes sense with my interpretation. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Yeah, the, the word could also mean that, uh, it could mean to twist or to turn. And so in this case, what I'm thinking, what I'm picturing is, you know, he kind of uh, uh, rolled over, he was groping for his covers, and behold, someone's laying at his feet. So, um, yeah, a lot of interesting little things there uh, in terms of the position and what's going on. How about verse 9? Ruth asks him, or essentially tells him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Um, why would Ruth need to be covered by Boaz's covering or his cloak? Yeah, uh, New American Standard says covering, Septuagint says cloak, um, or the outer edge of his cloak. You know, it was common in the ancient world if you were uh, going to sleep at night that you would use your outer garment, your cloak, as a blanket. And that's why if uh, you had taken somebody's cloak as a pledge for a loan or, or some promise, that you wouldn't keep it beyond sunset. You would give it back to him at the end of the day uh, because you wouldn't want him to go be cold during the night. So it's like a blanket, basically. Uh, Ruth says that her reason that he she wants him to cover her is because he is a, the Hebrew word is goel, goel. And that's the word translated as redeemer or kinsman redeemer. And we talked about that back in chapter 2, verse 20. Mm -hmm. So there's something in her actions. Uh, she wants some of his uh, blanket to cover her. That conveys the desire to be redeemed. And that would have been understood by Boaz. W what else, Nick? Well, lady's been stealing the covers ever since this time, huh? I mean, <laughs> taking all the blanket. Um, Cover hog. For, for Boaz to spread his wings over Ruth. It means more uh, than just to be responsible for Ruth's welfare. It was Ruth asking for Boaz to marry her. And so it's an idiom. It's uh, well attested in other Old Testament texts, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, Ezekiel 16, verse 8. And there it's uh, to picture Yahweh and how he spread his wings over his bride Israel. Uh, so Ruth, she is seeking Boaz to do his duty as kinsman redeemer and marry her. Kind of a technical phrase there for that. Yeah, it's a good throwback there to Ezekiel 16 as well. And uh, 
what we say in the first podcast, you know, irony abounds, right? So Boaz right. is the one who says, may Yahweh bless you, cover you with his wings. And yet she's asking Boaz to cover her with the wings of his cloak. Very good. That's right. Um, verse 10, Nick. Boaz mentions that Naomi's last kindness was greater than her first kindness. Um uh, what maybe this is just awkward wording in the translation. What was the first kindness shown to Boaz? Boaz probably has in mind Ruth's choosing solidarity with Naomi. Um, he had commended her uh, for this earlier in the season, uh, the harvest season two, uh, barley season two, verse uh, eleven. Uh, so the the word here, by the way, uh, for kindness is the Hebrew term has said. And it's a word that is typically translated steadfast love in uh, the, the English Standard Version, which is what I use. And so uh, that's a noble quality, no doubt, adding to the fact that she is a worthy woman, uh, as we see here in the text. What else, Alex? Yeah, that's exactly right. And as we'll see in the next verse, Ruth has a good reputation now among the Israelites in Bethlehem. Uh, Boaz acknowledges that she could have had a younger man if she desired to remarry, but instead Ruth seeks what is best for Naomi and securing Naomi's family lineage. Uh, this strikes Boaz as righteous, as loving, as a loyal act, that chesed, steadfast love. So the first and last kindness here really isn't referring to Boaz, even though in my translation it kind of makes it sound that way. No, it's actually Boaz referring to the kindness Ruth has shown to Naomi, both at first and now, in her desire to marry the Goel. Well, Nick, what things would have made Ruth well-known for being a woman of excellence, as Boaz mentions in verse 11? Yeah, or a worthy woman is what my English standard says here. Right. Um, note also, Boaz... He's merely reporting what the townsfolk already know about Ruth's character. In just a few short weeks, she's earned this reputation. And again, I think foremost in their minds is, again, she chose solidarity with Naomi. She is showing steadfast love. Um, also, another aspect of Hesed, the covenantal aspect um, of the, the kind of love that typifies Yahweh for Israel and so that's what she's shown to Naomi, and people call her excellent, worthy because of that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that same word or same phrase for worthy woman here is used over in uh, Proverbs chapter 31 about the uh, the worthy woman there and, and the description that follows in those verses. So I think you're right, yeah. A lot of, lot of connections here. Uh, well, not say so you, Alex. Uh, yeah, I was going to say not to mention her extremely hard work ethic, right? That's right, yeah. Uh, that's uh, listed out for us in Chapter 2, and we went into that last time. Yeah, she works all day, every day, and she's a hard worker. Um, what else do we have here, Nick? How about verse 13? Uh, Boaz tells her, you know, just just remain tonight in the morning. We'll take care of business. Just lay down until morning, verse 13 here. So, Alex, why does Boaz want Ruth to remain until morning? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that is likely for safety. As mentioned earlier about winnowing, this would have been outside of town. It's in an open area, the countryside. And uh, it's the time of the judges. You know, this is a dangerous time. There are no police. Yeah. Um, bandits are 
a normal part of ancient roads, especially at nighttime. It's a dangerous time to be traveling. And again, she's uh, she's dressed up in her prettiest, looking her prettiest, smelling her prettiest. Not a good time to be by yourself out in the dark with bandits, uh, possibly, <laughs> possibly out there as well. Not a good time. So I think for safety, what do you think? Yeah, Boaz may have been concerned if he sent her out. You know, if, while it's still midnight, she might get hurt wandering around in the dark stub a toe or something no worse than that um or like you were talking about some knave in the night um at the same time wait until morning and they they leave she leaves before one person can recognize another uh verse 14 says right right if it's too bright outside ruth could be recognized and again you talked about the gossip train the rumor mills all over town no telling how much suspicion they would have produced based on seeing Ruth uh, in broad daylight after being with Boaz, making those connections and all that. So uh, I think I think there's uh, there are several reasons as to why they did it the way that they did. Right, right. Which brings us to verse 14, and and Boaz he wants to keep Ruth's presence there a secret. Why does he do that? Uh, that's likely, uh, like you mentioned, to protect her reputation, to protect both uh, his good name and her good name from slander, from rumors. You know, Ruth took a huge risk by her secretive actions. And again, I think that, that element of secretiveness um, emphasizes the risk and the timing and the way in which she makes her proposal. What do you think, Nick? No, I I agree. Uh, protecting her reputation, maintaining her integrity, all that. Well, we have a textual um, discrepancy here in verse 15, and so mm-hmm. uh, let's dig down into that for just a minute. It says somebody goes into town in verse 15, but the question is, is it Ruth who goes into town or Boaz who goes into town? What do you think? Mod- uh, modern English translations are pretty well split between either option when it comes to this textual variant here uh, for she went into the city. You can see the King James Version, the New King James, English Standard, New American Standard, Revised Standard, Holman Christian Standard. Pretty well that standard tradition there, I guess. Um, for he went into the city, the American Standard Version, the NIV, the New English Translation, New Century Version, New Revised Standard Version. Uh, they uh, went off on a tangent from the, the standard tradition there. Uh, the... Uh, Sariac and the Vulgate, they have the feminine, her, she. Uh, the Masoretic text has the masculine, so does the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, likewise can be and is translated in the masculine. So, which is it? Is it she went into the city or is it he went into the city? Well, I think he, the masculine, probably has the better explanatory power in that Boaz left work on the threshing floor in order to fulfill his promise to Ruth to ensure she's redeemed. So he leaves straightway to go up to the gate. Uh, That's where we next meet him is 4 verse 1. Uh, He'd gone up to the gate. So uh, given this uh, textual variant here, a, a definitive conclusion, it's difficult to attain, but I think from where I'm sitting, the best seems to be he went into the city. What say you, Alex? I'm going to take the other side. I'm going to say that it makes more sense to render it as she. And that's based off of the next sentence, right? So you have the very next sentence which says, when she came to her mother-in-law. It was important for Ruth to leave first. 
because it was still dark. And that would be when, uh, you know, early sunrise where it's not quite bright enough for anyone to recognize her. Uh, who would recognize her? Who would be up and around to recognize her? People up early in the city. She's going to go back to her mother-in-law. Where does Naomi live? In the city. It's Boaz who later goes into town, and that's true. But I imagine that he would have waited a while in order to avoid suspicion if anybody happened to actually recognize Ruth earlier that morning. And so, you know, you don't want to have him trailing just 50 feet behind her. That's way too suspicious. <laughs> so <laughs> I think she went into town, met with her mother-in-law, and then later he went into town. So I vote she. But Fair enough. Ah. Both there we go again, ah. presenting both sides ah. of the argument. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most balanced podcast in the entire internet. Yeah, take that, Fox News. That's fair and right. balanced. That's right. Verses 15 <laughs> and 17. Uh, Boaz, he measures out six measures of barley and put it on her, and uh, she carries that back home. Uh, Ruth does. So, uh, Alex, talk a minute about what is the meaning of carrying the barley back home to Naomi. Yeah, I think this definitely has um, symbolic meaning. Like, it was real barley, but, I mean, it it wasn't about getting her more food or providing more uh, rations for her and Naomi. I think Boaz, through this act, is communicating his intentions to Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. His intentions are not to abandon Ruth— uh, perhaps it would even show that, you know, Ruth, in her gesture, uh, she was not taken advantage of. She was not used and tossed aside. Um, I see this act as a testimony, if you will, from Boaz, that he did not take advantage of Ruth. He did not claim her yet, but he intends to right away. And this is, you know, the best that he has at the moment to communicate that. Go back with this gift to your mother-in-law. I will sort this out. What do you think? I, no, I think that's all spot on. I'm going to talk just a moment about the, the six measures. The, the Hebrew here is, is enigmatic. Uh, there's no definite measure unit that's given here. Right. Just right. Uh, he gives six barleys, right? Um, so looking at it a couple different ways. If it was an, uh, an ephah, we were introduced to that in the, the previous chapter. We're looking at about 180 to 300 pounds of grain. <laughs> Probably wasn't that. Um, uh, it could have been the omer. That would have resulted in about 18 to 30 pounds of grain. Or it could have just been like six scoops. Yeah. Boaz maybe using his hands to scoop out six yeah. um, barleys to Ruth here. So I mean, and it sounds like she's like carrying it back in her dress, basically. Right. Um, so probably not a whole lot. <laughs> Verse 18. Okay, what do we have? Um, let's talk about Naomi's reaction here. She says, wait, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out today for the man. We'll not rest until, uh, but we'll settle the matter today. Yeah. Uh, talk for a second about Naomi's reaction here. What, what does Naomi's reaction say about Boaz? I think that Naomi got Boaz's message through the barley loud and clear. I think what was communicated uh, by the barley being brought back is that Boaz is serious. He desires to redeem Ruth. And Naomi takes that to mean, you know, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, but today. And so she's confident that Boaz is righteous. He did the right thing. And uh, he's going to take care of matters right away. What do you think, Nick? You know, what's interesting is this is, this is the final action of Ruth. 
in the book. I mean, she's she's mentioned again, and uh, she has the children. Uh, she bears the the, the son for. Uh, Boaz continues the lineage, but this is this is it. The, and it may be that Naomi is essentially saying the women's role is finished here. There was a time for action, clandestine as those actions were, <laughs> and now it's time to just sit tight. It's, it could be understood that way, the, the weight there. Sit tight. We're going to see what happens next. And I do want to point this out also. Notice that Naomi does not credit God, nor does she credit divine providence for what will happen. There's no if God wills or even mention of God. And I think we need to be careful not to read back into Naomi our understanding of the providential care of God, that he his, his unseen hand is still at work here and will carry this through. But for Naomi, her own perspective is that she is Mara. She is the bitter one. Hers was not, her song, the one that she would sing was not, What a friend we have in Jesus. She was singing, What a foe we have in Jesus. Or Yahweh, I should say. Uh, (laughs) So Naomi emphasizes the man, for the man will not rest, the man Boaz. And so uh, Naomi has essentially adopted the Sarah Connor ethic from Terminator 2, no fate but what we make. And she has certainly made her own luck here, as it were. Right. Uh, you know, as you're saying those things, you know what the Book of Ruth is reminding me of? Um, it's reminding me a lot of the Book of Esther, mm. where you have a story that, um, do you read it as the providential working of God? Because God's not really mentioned in the Book of Esther. Yeah, unless unless you're, you're reading from the Greek. That's right, right unless you're reading <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the Septuagint, the Greek version of Esther which definitely has some uh, what seems to be some some big additions. So, uh, yeah, Nick, that's exactly right. And it's kind of like when we're reading through the book of Jonah, right? And we're seeing things from his skewed perspective. Um, The important question is not how does Jonah see the situation, but how does the reader at this point in the story see the situation? And so this is the point where the reader gets to engage and gets to say, am I going to be, am I going to see it like, Jonah, or am I going to see it like uh, through through the lens of of God being the the provider? Am I going to see it through Naomi, or am I going to see it through no? This is still God working in a providential way. And going back to the purpose of the book, this is supposed to bring about uh, legitimacy, uh, divine legitimacy to David's lineage, so that his. Uh, lineage will not be questioned so that his his though he has a moabite in his ancestry his anointing and his reign as king is not questioned so um very interesting stuff nick you know it's more interesting one minute sermons that's right one minute time sermons. for a one minute sermon <clears throat> uh just again uh, this is a new segment for season two we we did we started um back in episode one of season two we are preachers, Alex and I are, and we also have a heart for preachers. We know Sunday's coming, and so we want to do a little bit of your homework uh, to start off here, uh, your sermon prep. And what we do, we have each selected a song title from any genre. That's right. And I've selected one for Alex. He selected one for me. We don't know what the other has picked, so <laughs> this is always fun, <laughs> uh, the surprise aspect of it. 
But uh, what we're going to do, we'll have one minute on the clock, and we got to come up with a text and the the start of a good sermon. That's right. Uh, and I believe, Nick, it is your turn to go first. Oh, boy. So uh, roll up your sleeves. It is time to... Are you wearing short ready. sleeves? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it is time to preach a one-minute sermon. Nick, a few years ago, the uh, movie The Hobbit was released, mm. and there was a song on there I liked by Ed Sheeran, and it's called I See Fire. So, Nick, Man. that's your one-minute sermon today ready. is I See Fire by Ed Sheeran starting now. It's got to be from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, where you have the the three companions of Daniel, Daniel who have uh, been thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. They refuse to bow down, and so for their faith, Nebuchadnezzar threw them into uh, the fiery furnace, and all they saw was fire. They saw fire, but they also saw someone special there. Nebuchadnezzar saw him too. There's a fourth. He looks like a son of God, the son of, he's, he's a brilliant one. And here's the thing, for us, when we're walking through our trials and all we see is fire, guess what? We have one who walks with us. And though he is unseen, uh, he's right there with us to carry us through, to make sure that the fire doesn't singe us. We can come out the other side. We don't even smell like smoke, just like the three companions of Daniel uh, when they walk through that. Talking about Jesus, of course, who walks with us, and I believe that's my time. And one minute. Woo! Wow. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Take that. I like uh, the uh, Septuagint additions to that story, too. <laughs> <laughs> you can go back to the archives. We talked about that. That's right. Season the one. Editions of Daniel. That's right. Okay. Woo. Your turn, Alex. Good job. Good job. Good job. That was well done. That was a good one. I see fire. Yeah. All right. So um, let's go with this one. I have a list, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I've started making a list. Um, So unfortunately, the the songwriter for this song died, um, I believe it was last year, Chris Cornell, lead singer for uh, a band called Soundgarden. But he also wrote this song for another band called Temple of the Dog. And the song is entitled Hunger Strike. Hunger Strike. Hunger Strike. One minute on the board. Is this a real, Alex, real song? I'm going hungry, going hungry. It's a real song. <laughs> and you have one minute. Hunger Strike. Go. Hunger Strike. You know, during Jesus's temptation in the wilderness which prepared him for ministry by the way you can read about this in Matthew chapter 4 he went on a 40 day fast of course his 40 day in fasting was strong typological fulfillment of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness where God prepared his people for the entering into the promised land and Yahweh tested them with the lack of bread. Uh, They were hungry so that they would know they do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan, too, tests Jesus in this way. 
and he comes out triumphant. And we too, when we put the word of God into our soul as nourishment and strength to help us grow and to be strong in the Lord, we learn that uh, we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So even when we're fasting or when we're hungry or when we're desiring of earthly things, there is something better that fills us, and it is the bread and word of God. Bravo. You actually went over time, but you know what? I was so enthralled by what you were saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's one-minute sermons. There you go. You have a.m. and p.m. There you go. One for a.m., one for p.m. That's, that's right. <laughs> you could just string all six of these one-minute sermons that we've done together and have a nice Wednesday night Devo. <laughs> there you go. That's so. right. Uh, anything else you want to say about Chapter 3, Alex? Nope. Uh, looking forward to next week with Chapter 4. There is uh, what I consider a bombshell that uh, we have uncovered in our research that mm-hmm. we'll mention concerning um, Ruth's sister, Orpa. We thought she was long gone from the story. Chapter 1, nope, she comes back. So we'll talk about that next week. In the meantime, be sure to um, send us any questions you might have to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. What else, Nick? We're also in the iTunes store. We're also in the Google Play Music store. Did I get that right? Yep. And you can search there, Swordplay. The podcast is there. Excuse me, leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast as well. And you can download episodes to your particular device. That's right. Well, we appreciate you guys tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. Looking forward to next time. Uh, That's it for now. See you next time on Swordplay. Swordplay.